How's that? Can you hear me out there? If you will, let's pause for a moment and join our hearts in prayer. God, we are ready to listen. Healing and sovereign God overmatch our resistant ears with your transforming speech. Penetrate our jadedness and fatigue. Touch our yearnings by your words. And through your out loudness, draw us closer to you. We are ready to listen. Amen. Well, today we are turning our attention once again to the story of God as told by a tax collector. We took a pause from our journey through the Gospel of Matthew for our fall kickoff series, during which we discussed the various icons of the grove. Icons being symbols and or metaphors through which we can glimpse God's plan for our community. I started us off with this series with the icons of the book and of the magnifying glass, suggesting that we at the Grove are a people of a story far larger than ourselves, and that this story is a mystery of sorts, a mystery that causes us to continue to search deeper and deeper for the meaning that is available to us. A mystery that is the mystery of God's tremendous love for God's creation. Jeff then challenged us to live out the hospitality of the table. And not just settle for what God holds for us within these walls. But to extend that table through mission to our community. Using the icons of the van and the trailer. And then Jody discussed and did a wonderful job describing the icon of the tree, which is so indicative of us at the grove, and what it means for us to stay rooted, what it means to bear fruit, what it means to provide shade, and all the various ways that we are to be that. And then we had sand and sauce last week. One of my greatest regrets uh, since being here is missing that outreach. Um, Nicole and I had to take a journey back to Florida. Uh, felt like I was coming full circle. I'm working with the teens and the students down here, and I had the opportunity to go back and to officiate a wedding of one of uh, the kids from my original youth group, who's in his 30s now, and he got married. And so I miss being here. Uh, I will say that I have found my way into the kitchen downstairs and sampled Jeff's blueberry chipotle barbecue sauce, and that has uh, calmed my heart a little. So thank you for that. But uh, now, we're returning to our walk through the very good news of Matthew's gospel. Today, we're continuing that look at chapter 20 in the gospel of Matthew. Before our fall kickoff series, Jeff had spoken to us regarding this chapter's challenge, which is Jesus' call for the first to be last. He actually began with the story of the rich young man in the chapter that preceded this chapter. 
and what it means for us to be willing to lay down our privilege in those things that we have, uh, or those things that have granted us status and power so that we might stand with those who have historically been marginalized. You're right, might remember it seems like forever ago, and yet it also seems like yesterday that this sermon took place right after the tragic events of Charlottesville, Virginia, and what was going on with our nation. And in fact, it seems like every week carries with it a new tragedy. And so God's calling us to be first by being the last, by standing with the marginalized. He reminded us that racism has no part in the kingdom or kingdom of God. The following week, he continued exploring the challenge of Christ's message that the first must be last by looking at the parable of the laborers and the vineyard. And by explaining that if we are to follow the way of Jesus, the Christ, that we must release our addiction to the illusions of control and fairness and must instead wholeheartedly embrace the radical inclusivity of God's grace and love directed to the whole of God's creation. And so now having heard this, God's great reversal, and hopefully having taken it to heart, we look, we look once more at the example of this message given to us in Scripture. So if you'll do me a favor, if you have a scripture, a Bible, um, if not, there should be one near you under your seat, or you can look at the screen behind me. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 29 through 34. I'll give you just a second. Look up at me. Smile real big once you get there. I like those smiles. Some good ones over here. AJ. There we go. All right. So Matthew chapter 20, Jesus heals two blind men. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes Immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Again, we've been challenged by the passages that I spoke of earlier. That if we want to model the way of Jesus, if we want to live out the great reversal, we must lay aside our rights and privileges and we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to God's radical inclusion and embrace. And now here at the end of this chapter, we're reminded that this is no easy task. You see, it's no easy task for those of us who need healing and Jesus' touch to admit that we are in need. To gather up 
The courage to look foolish and to put our faith in someone other than ourselves. Even if that someone else is God. You see, it's no easy task for those of us who comprise the crowd to come alongside of those in need. Instead, we want to stifle their voices because their cries for aid afflict our comfort. Their very presence disturbs the equilibrium of the system that benefits so very many of us. You see, it's no easy task for those of us who call ourselves disciples or students of Jesus to know that we are to stand with those who are hurting and marginalized and to know that to do so will cause us to lose our status with those in the crowd. We know that to stand with those who have been vilified and scapegoated is to direct that same scapegoating mechanism in our direction. How do we maintain our social status, our relationships with those friend and family members who comprise the crowd when our standing with the disregarded and the marginalized challenges those friends and family members' very way of being and understanding the world? Must we pick sides? And finally... It's no easy task to be like Jesus and to hear the cries of those who need God's hands and feet in their lives. It's so much easier to tune our ears to the adulation and the encouragement of those surrounding us. It's so much easier to continue along our way and to go with the flow. It's so much more difficult to hear the need and to allow it to move us with actionable compassion. So how can we embrace the challenge of the first being last? How can we set aside our privilege? How do we radically embrace God's love? I could give you a list of things this morning that you and I can do. I can tell you about all the various ways that you can serve at the Grove. And if you're interested, come and see us about that. Or I could talk to you about... Agencies and organizations and institutions here in Western Carolina that do so very much to assist those who are in need. But I'd like to take a different approach this morning. This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like us to relax. And I'd like to lead you and introduce you, if you're not familiar with it, into a more... Uh, serious and personal engagement with the text through prayer. I want to share with you a way of praying that involves our imaginations, that involves more than just the cognitive portions of ourselves. This form of prayer is a simplified form of what is known in Christian circles as Ignatian spirituality. Now, show of hands. Right, right or wrong. Uh, there, there, there isn't a right or wrong, but just for my entertainment, how many of you are familiar with Ignatius of Loyola? Raise your hand. All right, well, here we go. Uh, St. Ignatius was born in 1491 and lived into uh, the 1550s. He was a Spanish, a, a Basque priest and theologian. Uh, who founded the religious order known as the Society of Jesus. The more familiar term of that is the Jesuits. Now, I know many of you have heard of the Jesuits. 
and he became its first uh, supreme general. You see, he was born in a castle overlooking the city of Loyola, Spain. And he was raised in nobility, and he spent his youth traveling, as many nobles of that day did, learning the arts of literature and of warfare. Those two came together. And he also sinned without abandon. (laughs) He had all the privileges that money gave you in those days. He was devoted to the service of the Spanish king, and he served both in the court and in the army. And in 1517, he joined that Spanish army. But in 1521, while on duty, his life was to change forever. He and his troops were defending the city of Pamplona when a French cannonball passed through his legs. And it seriously injured his lower left leg. Now the French were kind enough to return him to the Spanish. And there in Loyola, he underwent a long Convalescence that included rebreaking of his leg, sawing off pieces of the bone of his leg, hanging weights to try to lengthen it. And while he was laid up, being nobility and being a person of letters and reading, very unique for his time and his day, he was very desirous to read the stories that had captured his attention as a youth. These stories of chivalry and adventure, of knights slaying dragons and rescuing maidens. But hospitals back then were mostly run by nuns and by priests in convents and in monasteries. And so that type of literature was very scarce. Instead, the type of literature that was given to him were the gospels and were... Stories of the lives of saints, very uh, admirable people who had followed in the way of Christ historically. And while he was recovering from this surgery, he underwent a spiritual conversion that led him to a call to abandon his life of nobility and instead to devote himself to the religious life that I described earlier. The religious work which most particularly struck him was the De Vita Christi of Ludolf of Saxony. Now, those of you who are thinking about having kids, can I just recommend the name Ludolf? We we need more Ludolfs in the world. And this book would inspire and influence his whole life. It had him follow in the footsteps of people like St. Francis of Assisi and other great monks. And it inspired the method of meditation in which we're going to practice a simplified form of this morning. Because what Ludolf proposes is that the reader places himself mentally at the scene of the gospel story. To visualize what it would be to stand at the crib in the manger. To examine what it must have been to walk with Jesus in the cool of the day. To... Know what it was to imagine and place your senses and imagination and what it must have been that like to have stood at the cross. And so this is simple simple contemplation. Simple contemplation is what this is referred to. And it's just a way of praying the scriptures. That's all it is. For some of you who grew up really Christian around my time, there was a show on Christian television called Superbook. Anybody? Thank you. 
That's always my go-to for that stuff. Where these kids had a robot and a time machine and they would go back and walk with Jesus and watch the story that way. It was pretty cool. So we're going to do that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you just to relax. It's uh, because it's hard to imagine if you're tense. And we're not going to take too long with this. But I want to read um, this passage of scripture. It's short enough. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read it. And I'm going to kind of guide you with some questions to put your senses and imagination into what it must have felt like. This story from the status and from the position and from the place of the two blind men. Then we're going to read it again. And I want you to think about it from the profile, from the situation and position of those in the crowd. We're going to read it a third time and we're going to soak in what it must have been like to have experienced this situation as one of the disciples, one of Jesus' twelve who walked with Jesus and who had already been challenged with this idea of what it meant to be uh, last in order to be first in the kingdom of God. Remember, these were the ones who were arguing over what seat, uh, who could sit at Jesus' right hand. Remember that they got their mom involved. That's always a good move, have mom talk to Jesus. Uh, and then also, these were the ones who, who Jesus brought the little child amongst them and said to them, hey, unless you become like one of these little ones, you have no place in my kingdom. And then finally, we're going to read this from the perspective of Jesus himself. And you might say, whoa, don't do that. We can't imagine or propose to understand what it was to be the son of God. Okay, except that we're supposed to imitate Christ. <laughs> and so we need to imagine what Jesus may have felt and understand. There's that human aspect of, of Jesus that we identify with. So you may want to take out a little note card or journal if you have it so that you can jot down some of your thoughts or feelings. Or you may just want to close your eyes and uh, give yourself freely to this imagination. Or you may want to watch me and make sure I'm not doing some weird hocus pocus over you all, which I'm not. And you might ask yourself, well, what the heck does this have to do with anything? Sometimes we sit in these services and sometimes we listen to our podcasts and sometimes we read uh, our scriptures and lessons and studies and devotionals and books. And it's easy to understand what the right thing is to do and to create this kind of cognitive checklist of what gets us in and what, what keeps us out. But oftentimes we don't engage with the whole of who we are. We don't put ourselves in that place. And if we can put ourselves in the place of these stories in a very real way, then perhaps when we come into situations in our daily lives, we're able to take what we learn from those moments and respond in the same way. So here we go. Again, reading this again from the standpoint of the two blind men. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. 
When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them, saying, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Imagine yourself in this story. Ask yourself, as a person with infirmity and blindness, how did you arrive? Was it a conscious effort to put yourself in the place of Jesus' path? Who did you ask for assistance? Or did Jesus just happen to be passing by you? How long have you been without sight? Is the world one in which you've never known what it was to be able to see? Or is there something that happened along the way? An injury or a disease that caused you to lose your sight? Devoid of sight, your other senses are most likely heightened. What do you feel? What's the temperature today? Is it hot? Oppressive? Does the crowd make it worse or is it cool? Is there a breeze? The crowd is all around. What are the smells? What are the sounds? How is it that you know Jesus is there? Is it because the crowd is calling out his name? Did you hear him speak? Was there a quickening in your heart? Turn inward now. What is the thought that comes to mind that incites you to call out, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. What must it feel like when having gotten the courage to do so, the crowd begins to clamor for you to be quiet? To put you in your place. To say to you that you're not worthy of Jesus' attention. What is it like When you hear those words, what is it that you would have me do for you? What do you feel in that moment? Is there excitement? Is there fear that what you're hoping for won't happen? Can you sense the crowd parting as Jesus makes his way to you? How does he touch your eyes? Is it with force or is it just lightly? What is the sense that comes to you when all of a sudden your eyes are opened and you see? 
adrenaline, gratitude, laughter, tears, what's happening? What now? Who's the first person you must tell? What's the next thing you want to see? (laughs) That night at sundown, what fills your heart? Sunrise, what do you experience? What does it mean to be touched by Jesus and to be healed? Let's read this passage a second time. And now I'd like you to shift in your mind and in your imagination to that of a person in the crowd. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they regained their sight and followed him. As a member of the crowd, what brought you out today? Was it because you had witnessed Jesus' miracles or parables or sermons in the past? Is it because you're skeptical? Do you want to see what all this hubbub is about? How long has your journey been? What are you feeling Have you had a meal or are you hungry? As Jesus walks through the crowd, are you near him? Are you standing off kind of to the side, waiting and expectant? Or are you curious and surprised? Or are you just comforted at the sight of him? All of a sudden you hear two men on The crowd shout. Lord have mercy on us. Son of David have mercy on us. What are your thoughts? Are you shocked? Are you indignant? Why are they here? Do you find yourself. Supporting them and comforting them. And and thinking to yourself. Yes. Jesus healed them. Or do you find yourself saying. Shut up. Be quiet. Know your place. If you're blind. Obviously God is not with you. What do you sense around you. As the crowd continues to speak. What do you feel when all of a sudden. Jesus stops. Why is Jesus stopping. Doesn't he have places to go. Why is he bothering with these people. And Jesus walks over to them. What are your thoughts. What are you feeling. 
as he places his hand on their eyes. And it's apparent to all that they have sight. Do you feel shame? For having wanted to silence them, do you feel exultation? Are you just stunned? Is there joy? What do you leave thinking? Do you ask yourself in the following days, why was I so apt? Why was I so ready to try to keep them from Jesus? Do you find yourself more aware of those in need? Do you find yourself wanting to be with those who Jesus deemed worthy to have compassion upon? How does this day affect your relationship with your family, with your friends, with strangers? A third reading, this time from the vantage point of the disciples. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them, saying, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they regained their sight and followed him. You're Jesus' disciple. You were called by him, by name, to follow you. You've been with him. You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Nothing that's happening on this day surprises you. But what are you feeling? Oh, no. More people wanting to keep him from where he's going. When will he ever have enough of these folks? Do you find yourself, when the crowd shouts, for the two men to be quiet. Do you find yourself saying to you aloud or internally, oh, I remember when I felt that way. Is it with happiness and joy that you anticipate that this crowd's about to have their minds changed? Jesus is about to do what Jesus does and touch and heal. How will he do it this time? Will he spit in the mud? And put it on their eyes? Will it take two attempts as it did before with the two men who saw his trees? Is he just going to speak it and it happen? It's always interesting, right? To how Jesus does the healing. But you know the healing is going to come, right? How does this confirm in your mind who your master is. Do you find yourself jealous? I wish I could heal the way he heals. Or do you find yourself comforted? Do you find yourself wondering. How can I follow him and be for him. And at the same time. 
love these people who just don't know what the way of Jesus is? How does this change? How does this prepare you for the days to come? One more reading, this time from the vantage point of our master, Jesus. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. What is it like to have communion and intimacy with the Father in such a way that the miraculous is at hand? What must it be like to have a throng of humanity continuously following you everywhere that you are? Do you find yourself as the son of God, grateful and thankful for the times when you can withdraw to a solitary place and be alone with your dad? Do you grow tired and weary? Or are you energized by meeting the needs of those around you? You're with your disciples and the crowds here and you're obviously aware that people are for you and against you. What is it? Is it the tone of their voice? Is it there was a moment of silence when they fortuitously sought to speak and call out to you for, for need? What is it about these two blind men? What is it about the Holy Spirit's communion with you that directs you to go over to them? Is it compassion that breaks your heart towards the crowd? What does that feel like? To truly love so deeply that you put others before yourself. As you reach these two blind men, you place your hand on their eyes. Is it gratitude? Is it relief? Is it joy? Is it a mixture of all of them that you feel when they open their eyes? What do you hear in the crowd? What is the murmuring that's happening and taking place? What are the looks on your disciples' face? What's next? questions for us today so will those of us who need healing in Jesus touch admit that we have need will we gather courage to look foolish and put our faith in God in spite of our doubts the challenge before us 
is to ask ourselves, who are we seeking to silence? Who do we wish would just be quiet? How is our security and equilibrium being affected? Who are we angered by and who do we seek to other? Another question we ask ourselves today is what does it mean to be a disciple or student of Jesus? What does it mean to stand with those who are marginalized and oppressed and yet still love those of the crowd who would want to silence them? Do we have to pick sides? And if so, whose side do we pick? What will it cost us relationally to follow Jesus and to be with those folks that Jesus would be with? And what does it mean to endure scapegoating? What does it mean to have the crowd turn on us? Are we willing to take a stand? And finally, in the midst of our busy days, in the midst of all of our cares and concerns, our own issues, who is God calling us to be Jesus' hands and feet to this world? When we leave this place, this day, who do we need to reach out to? How do we need to reach out to them? How can we be God's healing and agency in this world? I'm going to ask that band come up. I challenge you to use these moments of singing these songs and when they start playing, if we'll stand to enter into this musical worship, to feel these words, to know these words, to make these words our prayer, to ask God to examine us now that our imaginations and our spirits and senses have been engaged of how we can respond to this story and to the challenge of the great reversal. What it means to lay down our privilege to radically join God's grace and love and inclusion and embrace stand to your feet and sing and pray with us if you will thank you for your patience on trying something new with me today I hope that it was enriching to your heart and mind and that it can provide with you Uh, for you a template of a way to immerse yourself in the scriptures in a different way. In keeping with the theme of St. Francis of Assisi, I'd like to close uh, with a prayer called the Anima Christi, also known as the Aspirations of uh, St. Ignatius. It says this, pray with me. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Permit me not to be separated from thee. From the malicious enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me. 
and bid me come unto thee, that I may praise thee with thy saints forever and ever. Amen. Our God is good. Our God, he is all the time. And our God enlivens us to be his hands and feet to the world. Love one another. Safe touch, please, on your way out. Hug, say hello, have a good week.